This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. And I was reflecting on how our perspectives, how we see life and how we see what's important affects our priorities and our priorities affects our actions. So they eat this stuff because they think the priority is to be famous or whatever and their perspective is that's the most important thing in life. Do you, see what, do you follow what I'm saying? Please nod if you're with me. And, and, I, and I thought about that and I thought actually we can sometimes feel in church that, that we're neutral that we're not being, our perspectives are not being shaped by other things. You know, ideal world, we say, we'd be, we're shaped by the Bible. You know, we're shaped by what God says, or we're shaped by uh, what, what we believe. But actually, the, the subtle pressure for us is, is, is the perspectives of the world and the perspective of the society that doesn't believe in Jesus constantly is pressing our perspectives, making us see things differently and giving us different priorities and changing our actions. So that's the whole thing that Vicky was talking about in school, about people, they don't see the big picture. They see, they see God as one thing or they see uh, uh, sex before marriage as this kind of incredible fun stuff and then they hear, hear a different perspective and then suddenly it changes their priorities and hopefully it changes their actions. And, and so I feel I just want to run that with us and I want to run that with us as a church that we're being discipled as it were by, by everything people at stuff's teaching us whether we whether we think we're listening or not so well, the, the, the sad reality is that I guess if we look at the world we're all making choices whether we call ourselves Christians or not we're all making choices and we think we're making free choices but actually, the, the perspectives and the priorities of our society are, are determining our choices. You know, nobody's really new to, do you understand what I'm saying? That nobody's really new to, that we're actually being taught to make the decisions we make. And we think, yeah, I'm making a free decision. But actually, we're being taught by our circumstances, by our surroundings, to make decisions. And, and one of the things I really feel as a church is that we need to see uh, from fresh perspectives. So there's a passage that I really love because it's got kind of strange eating habits and a bit of fighting in there and stuff like that. So uh, that's what we're going to read that. So if you've got a Bible, I'm sorry I don't have a PowerPoint, but if you don't have a Bible, I will try to read well, which is a stretch for me. Okay, so we're in uh, 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 24. Uh, Israel is in fighting with Syria, which is called Aram in this um, story seems like no change there it says sometime later ben hadan king of aram mobilized his entire army and marched up and laid siege to samaria that's kind of like the west bank now there's a, a great famine in the city of samaria the siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels a bit I'm a celebrity there and as the king of Israel was walking on the wall a woman cried to him 
help me, my lord, the king? The king replied, if the Lord does not help you, where can I get help? Can I get help from the threshing floor, from the wine press? And then he said to her, and what's your problem? She answered, this woman said to me, give me your son so we may eat him today and tomorrow we'll eat my son. This is a terrible famine. You know, the, the stuff that's eating, we're drifting into cannibalism. And so she said, so we cooked my son and ate him. And the next day I said to her, now give me your son that we may eat him. But she said she had hidden him. When the king heard the woman's robes, he tore his robes and he went along. And as he went along the wall, the people looked and saw that under his robes he had sackcloth on his body. Sackcloth means that he's kind of feeling despair. It's interesting, we had a word about hope. He's feeling a sense of repentance or despair. And, he, and then he starts, he does something kind of strange and says, May God deal with me, be ever so severely, if the head of Elijah, son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Basically, there's this famine, there's a, uh, a critical situation, people are eating each other's children, they're eating terrible stuff, the famine's closed everybody in, they're all appealing to the king for, to do something, and he said, well, I can't do anything, if God doesn't help us, I can't do anything, and then he decides to kill God's prophet, Elisha's God's prophet. We'll pick up the story again in a bit, but, but it, it, Samaria's been under siege that actually, you know, a donkey's head was worth a kilogram of silver. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know what... There's just some strange things on the menu on TVs and there's some same strange things. But I don't know, you know, if you thought, well, the donkey's head, that would that, be brilliant, wouldn't it? I presume the donkey had previously been doing rides on the beach and, uh, you know, it died and then maybe they'd eaten donkey steaks and then they'd gone... Uh, the, you know, they, then they thought, well, we're really hungry, let's dig up the old head and eat that. And... Um, and somewhere else, some, some entrepreneur, obviously, had been, the, do- the doves had been kind of Kentucky Fried Dove, and we'd had all those doves, and then they'd thought, well, you know, it's really bad now, we've got no doves to eat, let's eat the dove's poo, let's eat the guano, you know, and I, I guess they've mixed it up and put it in a little shake, and I'm loving it, you know, I don't know what they were doing. But, you know, there's this kind of sense, and they paid 55 grams of silver for your dove's dung milkshake. Uh, and you think, man, isn't it funny how the pressure... Of, a, of the famine realigns people's priorities, the, the circumstances, what they see and what they experience realigns their priorities. So stuff they'd never eat suddenly is like becomes very desirable. Things they'd never do, they kind of do. And um, I don't know if you've kind of heard about siege mentality where you feel that, uh, that things are getting worse and things are piling in and things are pressing in around you and you get this kind of siege mentality. And they've got this siege mentality in their thinking. They've got this pressures on, this famine surrounded by an army, famine, no food. They've got this siege mentality and it's making them do stupid stuff. And it's funny, I reflected on this passage uh, some years ago when I first read it and I thought, actually, my church experience is a bit of a siege mentality. Uh, we feel that you know, the world's pressing in on us and it's, uh, you know, church is getting smaller and church is under pressure. I know there's some churches that get bigger, but generally churches are under pressure, church is getting smaller. And the church I went to uh, was like so scared of the surrounding culture that, that it's almost like you didn't dare go out. And I've said this before that I was invited to watch a James Bond film when I was like 14 uh, with, uh, for a part of a kid's birthday party or friend's birthday party, and my mum wouldn't let me go. James Bond. Whew, 
tomatoes in. And um, we never really had any alcohol anywhere near the house. I'm not, I'm not preaching about the benefits of James Bond and alcohol. Please don't get me wrong. You know, but, but my mom was worried if I even sniffed some alcohol, I'd suddenly become an alcoholic. You know, and I wasn't allowed to go to, to discos because they were sinful and people moved their body in really inappropriate ways. And, you know, it was just like... <laughs> yes. And, uh, and it was like, oh, my word, it was like stay away from the world out there and it's almost like there was this walled up siege mentality now if you if you haven't been if you're only new into church then you probably think i can't understand that because it was really quite common in the kind of 60s and 70s where people were really scared of the world and they had this siege mentality and we had this overdeveloped sense of fear of, of what's out there. And so we kind of huddled together. It was like this bunker mentality. There was a kind of, you know, let's, let's all kind of circle the wagons and stick together as Christians and, because there's a horrible world out there and if we're not careful, it's all going to be bad. And it felt like to me that, that because we had that siege mentality, we, we, you know, spiritually the diet was pretty ropey. You know, it wasn't like... You know, you, I don't know what you feel about the diet here, but, but the, the, it felt that the diet was pretty ropey. You know, it was like really, really long songs. Hymn, verse after verse after verse after verse. Some of them were great, but a lot of them were just dreary. And you think, how many verses? And it's the same tune. And, and, and you know, and it's like nobody really engaged in the singing, in the worship. It was like, we just stand up, sit down. And, and, and everybody seemed quite miserable. And it really felt like uh, this diet of, you know, this meager spiritual diet. But you just thought, well, that's church and that's what you did. And so I felt like that, you know, that that, that was my kind of experience of, of growing up as a kid, this kind of siege mentality, that Christian experience was a bit dry and a, not very tasty and not very exciting. And, 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 and you were just scared all the time. You were scared all the time that if you stepped into the wrong thing suddenly sin would overtake you now i think it's sensible you know we're not suggesting our we just let our kids do whatever they want and we just do whatever we want and we're not we're not we don't believe that the world's got any influence on us because it has but the but there's this kind of siege mentality i think today it's the siege mentality is kind of slightly different because i don't even think we realize there is a siege we don't even realize that the world is pressing around us. Uh, it was interesting, there's a, somebody brought a contribution last week, Tony brought a contribution about like this war, we're all in this war, and he says there's a group of people who are in this war, and they're just kind of sitting around having a tea party. I was almost as if like, we don't realize there's a, we don't realize there's a war on. We don't realize there's a war for the hearts and minds, our hearts and minds, and the hearts and minds of this nation. We don't realize there's a battle going on. We sometimes feel those moments, but generally, we don't even think about it. And, and what happens is we kind of, uh, we swallow all sorts of stuff from society. Uh, a guy called Os Guinness, he says that, that the church has got unguarded borders. So instead of being like walled up, scared of anything that comes in, now anything can come in the church. We've got unguarded borders, we just believe any old thing. We do anything. And, and one of the sad things that you find from surveys is that the kind of behavior, the actions of, 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 of church people are, are no different from, from the actions of people who've got no faith at all. Um, I'm not going to list the type of things that go on, but, you know, I think one of the things that really, really, really hit me was uh, about the breakup of families, that, that there's no difference between the divorce rate in and out of church. The amount of... Uh, uh, people that look at pornography, no different in and out of the church. 
And you think, you know, there's a sense where stuff's just kind of flowed across our borders and we've just believed it. We've allowed the society, the world to disciple us uh, and, um, and we've just kind of, our diet's become really, really limited and we've not really fed ourselves. Um, it says in Isaiah, I think it's 55 or it might be 53, uh, Isaiah uh, says, why spend money on what is not bread and your efforts on what does not satisfy Listen to me and eat what is good and you'll delight in the richest affair. And I think sometimes now that we've got so invaded, the church has got so invaded by, by the world that actually our behavior is no different. And we chase after the, the doves, dung, the donkey's heads of, of the world uh, thinking they're going to satisfy us. So we're just, our priorities are just the same as the world's priorities. You know, that, that we, we think, you know, so I, we've got a sofa with a little bit of a rip on at the moment. You know, and every time I sit in here, I think, well, we need a new sofa. Don't worry, I'm not asking you to find myself, please. Uh, you know, or any of that. But it just, you can feel like, oh, I need a new sofa. Wouldn't it be great if I had a new sofa? Yeah, I'd feel better if I had a new sofa. And, and, and actually, ultimately, it doesn't matter, does it? it it's kind of running after something that's not going to satisfy. So, you know, some of you might be like, like this with gadgets. You know, you need the latest gadget. So my iPhone has now just become obsolete. That's now, I need another one. But no, I don't. But you can have this, if I get the next gadget, if I get the next thing, if I get the next promotion, if I get the next relationship, if I get the, the bigger house, the better garden, the, the better holiday, and, and all those things. And we kind of feed in ourselves with all those things and thinking, well, why am I not satisfied? And, 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 and Isaiah's saying, well, why spend your time and efforts on stuff that doesn't satisfy me? And it's interesting, the disciples are thinking of the, about this idea about food. The disciples are always chasing around after food. If you read the, the Gospels, they're always saying, oh, I need some food, I need some food. The disciples went off to get food. The disciples went food, and they're asking, has anyone got any food? Are they? So it's all food all the time for the disciples. They're all thinking, and, and Jesus makes this comment one time. He's talking to a, a woman at the well, and we'll pick up her story uh, later on. Uh, not today, but uh, in the series, and she's, he's talking to this woman who's been really badly messed around, and um, he's, he says, they said, why don't you have something to eat, Jesus? And he says this, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And they're thinking, well, what is it? What's he got? You know, where's he been? What's he got? He's got food I know nothing about. And he says, my food, does anyone know what it says? Said Jesus is to do the will of him who sent me and finishing his work. And that should be our spiritual food. We shouldn't be just trying to satisfy ourselves with all these other things that come in. We should be saying, my food, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. We sh- what, what else did Jesus say about that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by, does anyone know? Every word that comes from God's mouth. And that's where we should be feeding. So we've got these seeds, this infiltration, and we're eating rubbish, really, and we're saying, you know, so you, it's, it's quite common to say to people, you know, well, I haven't read my Bible for weeks, or I've not prayed for weeks, I've not, not because we do that to get points, but because that's what we do to feed ourselves. And so we've got this kind of thing going on with this siege mentality, sometimes scared of the world, sometimes invaded by the world, but also this siege mentality kind of brings us to, to cannibalism. There's this... Now, we don't literally do cannibalism, and I know that actually the early Christians, when they did bread and wine, uh, the, and they'd, they'd break the bread and say, this is my body. Uh, or, you know, they actually, the Romans thought they were being cannibals. That they thought they were actually literally eating people's flesh, and they were, you know, it's strange. So, so we're not talking about that cannibalism, but there's a kind of feeding off each other that, that goes on in churches. Um, so, you know, we had that situation where the woman said, you eat my son today and we'll eat my son tomorrow. I presume they'd already died. 
Otherwise, it is even more shocking. But because, because of this kind of cannibalism, churches feed off each other. So I, I think it's interesting to, to look around at, at the number of empty church buildings or former church buildings. You, you know, you find it in Manchester, in London, in Cheltenham, former church buildings that have, that have closed down. But yet, also at the same time, you've got churches that have really grown. Now, some of those people have, 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 have become followers of Jesus in that church, but a lot of people have just moved across. And it's fact, fact for true, true for some of you. People have just, we've just moved across. You know, and it's almost like we can have this kind of internal cannibalism where we, we see each other in competition with each other. So I know a friend of mine, I was chatting to him yesterday, and he said when he first pl- planted a church in, um, in North, uh, northwest London, he said, what happened? You know, we had about 40, 50 people, and then another church nearby had this big blowout, big split, big fight, and the church closed, and loads of people joined his church. Now, he didn't say he felt good that the church had closed, but he said it really, really helped. And I thought, you know, it's kind of a cannibalism, isn't it? Do you understand what I'm saying? There's a, well, we just want to feed off each other's children. We just want to eat, you know, so we'll steal people from other churches and other churches will steal from us. And we're kind of losing the plot. It's a siege mentality that says there's a limited number of people and, and, you know, we need to have these people. And I think churches can do that. And we can, internally in churches, we can feed off each other. Internally, we can, we can compete with each other. So we had, you know, we had a bit of a joke where people had come and do their G1C update. And to start off, we had to stop it, actually. But people say, this is a great group. Ours is the best group. Come and join our group and go, not go to everyone else's group. And it's kind of like, well, if we grow our group, it doesn't matter if the other group doesn't have any people. And, and we, we can be like that. We can be competitive with each other. And we can be fighting for position. And we can be aware. Of, and, and church has this cannibalism which comes out of this siege mentality that comes out of the thinking that God's never going to do anything, that nothing's ever going to change, it's never going to be breakthrough or transformation. And so we've developed this kind of crazy diet that doesn't satisfy, and we've started to, you know, we feed off each other. I said last week, you know, when I was talking to Roger Whittacombe about potentially a new church plant that came into town, and Roger was saying, hmm, I don't know how I feel about that. And he said, I've got to feel good, haven't I? I've got to feel good. But part of it feels, oh, people might steal my people. And we'll feed off each other, and it's not good. So we've got this kind of crazy situation. But actually, God doesn't want, to, uh, want, want Christians and church to live in that mindset, that siege mentality. So, so actually, the people in Samaria uh, look for leadership. Um, and they look to the king. That would be the obvious place to look for leadership. But actually, the king, I mean, he's incredibly cynical. He says this, the lady says, well, you know, we're all dying and my children's been eaten by someone else and, and all that. And he just, it's really dismissive. If the Lord does not help you, where can I get help from? Imagine if, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I hope I never do this. If somebody came, look, so I've really got this difficult situation. And I'd say, look, uh, you know, what's your problem? That's what he says, isn't it? What's your problem? He says, if God can't help you, I can't help you. Push off. And it's almost like there's just a sense of despair. It was really interesting that Tara's brought this word about despair. There's a sense of despair about the king. And he just becomes cynical. He says, this disaster's from the Lord. This challenge, this difficult stuff is just from God. And cynicism, if you write anything down or think of anything, remember this. Cynicism is the enemy of faith. Say that to the person next to you. Cynicism is the enemy of faith. Cynicism. 
Because all the king could see was the problem. All he could see was the challenge. He could see the armies surrounding. He could see the, the kind of uh, society breaking down. He could see the kind of the dietary stuff was going to end up that people were going to just die. And, and you know, he just blames God. He says in uh, verse 33 of chapter 6, he says, This disaster is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? And I think it's interesting, Christians, we, we can be the first to blame God. Sometimes out there, people in the world, they don't, they don't kind of blame God. They don't really have God on their radar. But if tough stuff happens to us, we can be the first to blame God. Why did that happen to me? I'm a Christian. It's not supposed to, bad stuff's not to happen. So we heard that Naomi's mum's cancer's uh, back after two years of remission. And, um, and, and I was talking to my mum, and, and my mum said, has Naomi cried? And um, I said, no. Because when Naomi talked to her mum, she didn't think, oh, this is terrible, this is the worst thing that can happen, God doesn't love me, God's abandoned me, God can't uh, be with me. She felt, no, I'm going to live my life large. That's basically what she said, isn't it? I'm not going to stop, I'm just going to live my life large. Uh, you know, she don't want to die. But she's going to live her life large. And we've sometimes uh, stopped living large and started to blame God. Faith waits, but unbelief is impatient. Say that to your neighbor. Faith waits, but unbelief is impatient. Is that true? I, when I'm not trusting God... I'm impatient. God, come on. We're three years into this church plant. Come on. You know, I've been in this, or I've been waiting. Well, it's not done about me. I'm just done hypothetical. I've been waiting X for this, this t- length of time for this job, or, or this length of time for, for a marriage partner, or this length of time for this, this to come through, or this length of time for my financial situation to change. And we just can start to, we can just start to become impatient. But actually, faith waits. Faith waits. Waits, and as I'm as I'm preparing this, I'm thinking, how would you need to believe God and have faith? But you say, but it's a famine, and there's where the people, and where's the breakthrough, and where's the good stuff that God has promised? Why do we feel surrounded? Why do we feel small? Why do we feel like nothing's happening? It's a famine, and, and I think, come on, God, I know that, I know that, because unbelief is impatient. That's why Tara said they're lies. Unbelief is impatient, but faith waits. Interestingly, just before this, um, just before this incident, Elisha's had a brilliant moment. Elisha's almost like the only guy in the town who's kind of got a true perspective. Everyone else is panicking, eating each other, criticizing each other, unhappy with the king, grumbling with their neighbors. It can feel a lot like Christian community at times. You know, that's what's happening. But yeah, there's one man. There might have been more, but we only hear there might have been some women, some men, we don't know. But there's, there's one man, Elisha, who's clearly got a different perspective. And, and, and you don't need to turn to it, but, but, if you have, but earlier on in chapter 6, in, in verse 15, there's been another siege. There's been another situation where the, the people of God have been surrounded, and it's been really, really bad. And, um, and, it, and Elisha's not panicked at all, and his servant's completely panicked. This is a disaster. Oh my word, we're all going to die. You would be the same. Yeah? When we talk about armies and war, we think, oh, it's just, you know, it's a game of chess. Or, I don't know, what's it? Warcraft, or I don't know, what those games. You must know, Tom. 
<laughs> Those game, it's a board game. But actually, it's really life, isn't it? People do, do die. And, and so, so, uh, so the, uh, earlier on, the city, the city is surrounded, and Elisha's servant's going, come on, God, where are you? This is terrible. We're supposed to win, and the, and the enemy's supposed to lose. This is really, really bad. And Elisha's just, I don't know what he does. Just drinking some cha, cup of tea, whatever, Jewish, whatever, prophets. You know, he's just chilled. And, and, and he, says, he says to the servant, it says, oh, let's just read it. It says, when the servant of the man of God up, man of God, so that's Elisha's servant, got up and went out early the next morning, it says an army of horses and chariots surrounded the city. And he goes, oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? And the servant answered, uh, the, the servant asked, and then, don't be afraid, Elisha answered. Those who are with us are more than those that are against us. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, that's about perspective, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire around Elisha. And then this is really interesting because God's opened the servant's eyes, but then this is what happens. As the enemy came down towards Elisha, Elisha prayed, strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness, as Elisha had asked, and they just wander off. So I think we can feel like, oh no, if things are tight, if things are under pressure, if there's pressure in our lives, pressure in our jobs, pressure in our situation, pressure in our health, that we're surrounded and, and we're outnumbered and it's not going to win. But, but Elisha just knows, no, there's a bigger picture. There's an eternal perspective, there's an, a heavenly perspective, and he's not panicked. We can be so like the servant. So what's happened is Elisha's in the town again and he's not panicked. He's not panicked. Somebody said to me uh, 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 a couple of weeks back that about churches can be unbelieving believers. Do you know what I mean? Unbelieving believers. We're supposed to believe something, but actually we're really unbelieving. But rather than giving in to despair... I did write that word terror, I haven't just used that. Rather than giving in to despair, Elisha prays again, and he hears from God, and he makes this outrageous pronouncement. Elisha said, verse, uh, 2 Kings 7, 1 now, if you're there, he says, Elisha says, hear the word of the Lord, this is what the Lord says, about this time tomorrow, a sack of flour, they'd forgotten what flour was, and two sacks of barley, remember that, you know, it's dove's dung and donkey's heads. Remember, a sack of flour and two sacks of barley will sell for 11 grams of silver. Suddenly we're paying a kilogram for a donkey's head, and now for two sacks of flour, we're going to just pay a tenth of that. And it's really interesting how the people respond. They respond in a way that we so often as Christians with siege mentality respond. The officer, verse 2 says, The officer on whose arm the king was leading said to the man of God, listen to this, Even if the Lord should open up the floodgates of heaven, could this happen? He's saying, it's never, go- oh we didn't put him up, well done. It's never going to happen. They're saying, it could never happen. And I think sometimes when, when we hear and about what and pray, we think actually sometimes we think it could never happen. It could never happen. Could somebody become a Christian from a really, really difficult background? No, it can never happen. Could that sin and issue and mindset that you've been working with, could you get free from that? No, it can never happen. 
Could that pattern of thought that's dogged you, that, that you've thought, that's got you down, and you thought, I'm not worth it, I'm not good enough, I'm, I'm not, you know, that I'm never going to amount to this. Could you ever get free from that? No, it never could happen. Even if God, the, the officer says, the king's officer, even if God should open the floodgates of heaven, could this happen? It's a rhetorical question. He's saying it couldn't happen. Elisha says to him, it's a bit harsh, Elisha says to him, carrying on, he says, you will see it with your own eyes. He must have thought, oh, that's good. I'm going to see this breakthrough that we've been praying for as a church, this, this transformation. I'll see it. It's going to come quite quickly. It's tomorrow. I'll see it. But he says, but you will not eat any of it. And it's interesting. I feel that sometimes if you don't believe God, you can see God do stuff in other places, but you never get to taste any of it yourself. And the thing is, the king's cynicism is infectious. The officer at his right hand just doesn't believe. Elisha's declaration seems foolish. It seems impossible that a sudden change of fortunes could happen. This seems inconceivable that God could do it. I heard a guy uh, who preached at a church in Manchester and he said this. He says, what you believe is impossible defines you. Now it sounds a bit like psychobubble, but I'm, I believe in God. What you say is impossible defines you. If we adopt a, it can never happen here. It could never happen to me. Nothing can ever change. This is who I am. Then the truth is that will define us. Small thinking and unbelief will define us. And you know what small thinking and unbelief creates in you? It creates, ah, oh, I can't be bothered. It creates passivity. Ah, oh, I'm not interested. I've got something else to give my time to. But when you think, man, I believe that God could do something, that actually, that plugging in and putting God first, two words, not God first church, but putting God first could actually mean my life is full of adventure and excitement and I could risk some stuff and see some stuff. So basically what Michael Ramsden said to Nays is, great, you know some people, now risk some stuff. Say some stuff. Pray for God to do some stuff. What? Could there ever be anybody from the running club become a Christian? Could anybody from the running club who's dealing with these issues and problems, could God ever be a solution for them? You think, nah, that would never happen. And so you become passive. I was really interested. I watched tennis, uh, and I I was watching uh, Richard Gasquet. Anyone heard of him? Richard Gasquet? No. Well done, boys, the sports boys at the back, was playing Rafa Nadal. Who's heard of him? And they were saying about this match, they said it's a semi final of the US Open, and, and Richard Gasquet had never, ever, ever got that far. He'd never really got beyond the last 16 into the second week, first match of the second week, that's the last 16. He'd never really got beyond the last 16, but yet he was an incredibly talented player. Uh, had all the shots, had a really good game, could volley, could play from the back, had a good serve, but he'd never ever progressed. He'd never ever gone to the final, latter stages of a tournament. And then, just as I'm watching, listening on the, uh, uh, to the commentary, one of the commentators said he was speaking to Richard Gasquet's coach. Richard Gasquet had got a new coach. And the thing about Richard Gasquet was that he'd always come into his matches in the second week of a, a Grand Slam where the games get tough. He'd always come into them with a bit of an excuse. So he'd started with his excuses again this year, but coach, I'm tired. I'm a bit unwell, I had a bit of a stomach bug. Uh, I'm injured. You know, my shoulder hurts, I can't serve. 
that even in the past he'd said that, that he'd said to his coaches, oh, uh, you know, I can't play really well because my family's not here. And then at other times he'd say, I can't play really well because my family is here. And, and, and he'd always come up with his excuses. He'd always got his excuses prepared before he played the game. England football's like that. We think if we go out nobly on penalties and don't lose, that's a win, don't we? We think, well, if the ball had crossed the line, if the ref had blown his whistle, Germany would have never won. If we'd have had a better play, if the turf hadn't slipped, we'd have won. But in their head, they've already got their excuses. They've already got their excuses. And actually, the coach said to him, Richard, you will never win if you've always got an excuse why it can't happen before you play. I'm sitting there and I think, Howard, God is speaking to you. If I've always got a reason why this, why my life can't be different, why the patterns of behaviour and the habits that I battle with can't be changed, or, or why this church can't be different, or why our mission can't be different, if I've always got a reason why that can't happen, we'll always, always have an excuse. So when I talk to mission communities, they say, well, if we live next door to each other, then it would work. If people felt differently in Cheltenham and didn't have their lives nicely buttoned down with loads of money, it would work. If I hadn't had this stuff happen to me in my life, it would work. If I wasn't so busy in my job, it would work. If my family didn't live miles away, it would work. And then we've got all these reasons that are all valid in one sense. But if we play those tapes, are you with me? If we play those tapes, we will never win. We'll be like the king's servant and say, God couldn't do it even if he opened the windows of heaven. Let's finish this story. Whew. But hopefully you got something out of it already. <laughs> so what happens? Let's read. It's a long reading uh, at the end now. So, so what happens? Elisha said this is going to change tomorrow. And he says to this king's servant, you're not going to see it. He says, now there are four men with leprosy at the entrance of the king's gate. 2 Kings 7, 3. And they said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city... Well, there's famine there, and we're going to die. If we stay here, we're going to die. They're obviously leopards, so they're going to die anyway. Let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, we die anyway. At dusk, they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans, verse 5, and they reached the edge of the camp, and there was no one there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear a great sound of chariots and horses and a great army, verse 7. And, and the Arameans had got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. And they left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. Then the men with leprosy reached the edge of the camp, emptied one of the tents and ate and drank. So all these tables laden with food. Then they took the silver and gold and clothes and went off and hid them. Uh-huh, we're ahead. They returned and entered another tent and did the same. Took some things, hid it. And then they said to each other, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news, and we're keeping it to ourselves. If we wait till daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the palace. It's really interesting now what happens as they report this. So they went out and called to the gatekeepers and told them, we went to the Aramean camps and there's no one there. Not a sound of anyone, only the tethered horses and donkeys. People thinking, donkey's head, great. The tents were just as they were. The gatekeepers shouted the news and reported it to the palace. What do you think the king's going to say? Don't look ahead. 
He should say, brilliant, Elisha's true. What God said is true. It's, gonna, it's happening. He goes, hang on. There's got to be a catch. There's no way that God could be actually doing something. So he can get up in the night and said to his officer, tell you know what your remains have done. They know we're starving, so they've left the camp and hid in the countryside thinking, well, when they come out, we'll get them. God's done a miracle and thought, man, it can't be God. There's got to be a trick. There's got to be a catch. There's got to be something wrong. So he sends an officer, he sends, the, sends a load of uh, people to find out what's happened. They come back with a report. And then it says, so the messengers returned to the camp, verse 16, and the people went out and plundered the camp. So it was as it said, the seth of the finest flour sold for a shekel and two seths or two sacks of flour of barley sold for a shekel. Now the king had put the officer on whose arm he had leaned, the guy who said, it's never going to happen, in charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gateway and he died just as the man of God had foretold. Let me just try and get this down quick. They, they, these lepers are not men of faith, are they? Are they men of faith? No, they're pragmatists. If we stay here, we die. If we go there, we die. Fine. Let, let's, let's take a chance. We'll work it out. They had this sense of their own mortality. They knew, well, we're going to die. We're going to die. So, so therefore, let's, let's, let's take some risks. Let's go for it. We're going to die. But we don't have a sense of our own mortality, do we? We don't have a sense of our own mentality when, when, when something like a cancer breaks in and we realize we're mortal. What have I done with my life? We think we're going to live forever and we can busy ourselves with other things and we can sit in the siege mentality, eating the donkey's heads, surviving uh, breadline Christianity and we never take a risk. The, 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 the lepers make an assessment we've got nothing to lose. One of the reasons why we don't risk for God one of the reasons why we don't throw off society's thinking is because we think we've got something to lose. When the church was 10 people, we thought, hey, we've got nothing to lose. If somebody joins us, we're winning. You get 50, somebody leaves in the summer, you think, disaster. Because we changed our mindset. We've started to believe that actually we'll have old, hold on to what we've got. We've started to do that. But the, but the lepers, they go outside the city. I'll finish with this. And we will then show, watch the clip if we can get it. The, the lepers go outside the city. It felt safe in the city, but they were going to die in the city. But they had to go outside the city. They had to go outside the camp. <laughs> they had to go outside the camp to risk, to say, well, we'll get outside. And you know what happens is we've got this idea that the best blessing happens in church. That you come inside the camp to get blessed. But bottom line is, if the church has got a siege mentality, you come inside to get a bit of a donkey's head sermon from Howard. You know, you get a dove's dung set of worship. No, sorry, you guys are great. You know, you, and that's, we think, blessings come to church for blessings. But actually, in God's economy, the place of blessing is outside the camp. Jesus goes outside the camp and lays his life down on a cross, on his own. The place of death becomes the place of life. The place of shame becomes the place of honor. The place of defeat becomes the place of victory. The place of famine becomes the place of plenty. They go out to Jesus. It's almost like these guys go out and taste the goodness of the gospel. They go out and taste the goodness of, of Jesus. It says in Hebrews, let's go to Jesus outside the camp. And I think if we brave, and I'm saying this to myself as I'm saying it to you, God, first, as we go outside the camp, we've got to say, actually, that's where God blesses us. 
When we take a risk outside the camp, that's where God blesses us. That, 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 that's where God, that, that's where, you know, when the Hebrews write to Hebrews says, let's go to him outside the camp, that's where Jesus is working. If you want to catch the goodness of the gospel, go outside the camp. So, to, I know we, we'll talk about her, and I feel sad, about it, but Lord loves the story. To me, it was great to, to actually feel Haley meet with God, because she's someone who lived outside the camp. And it was great to try and even help her as she moved, and God first, we've bought her a cooker. Thank you, you did well. We've bought her a cooker, and we've paid for someone to install it because the house she moved in got no one. And I thought, I feel good doing that. Not just spending your money, but actually we we feel like we want to go outside the camp because that's where God's working, and that's where we get the goodness of it. Let's see if we can try this again. Then I really will. I don't feel confident. Historically incredibly accurate film, but, but I love that line. And I've, I've probably showed it to you before. I forget who I've showed what to. It's my age. But I love that line that says, well, go and you may live. 
fight and you may die. But dying in your beds, would you trade all the days from that day to this for just one chance of freedom? And I think that's the kind of message of this story that we, we need to believe God. When you say, well, I can look after the things and live in a siege mentality and worry about the things of this world and dine in my beds many years from now. Well, I trade those things to live big. I'm saying it to myself. I'm saying it to you. There's a guy and he said this. He died taking the gospel to South America. He said, he's no fool. He gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which... He cannot lose. And a friend of mine, I finished with this, a friend of mine called Simon Reynolds um, in his 20s, <clears throat> he didn't do that well at school and wasn't really that, kind of sucked into a career and decided to go to South Africa, pre-apartheid South Africa, so some years ago now, and tr- risk as a white guy going into black townships to share the gospel of Jesus. And actually as he was going into the townships, he was in a, in a lorry that, and another lorry came the other way and had swerved off the road. And the lorry turned over and he was killed. And his parents um, were looking through his stuff after he died and it was very sad and felt like, what a sad life. Just snuffed out so quick. You know, could have had all this life in front of them. What a, what a sad life. And they found this poem. <clears throat> I don't know if Simon wrote it or someone else wrote it. But it's called Risk. And if you've heard it before, I still feel it's good. To laugh is to risk looking a fool. To weep is to risk appearing sentimental. To reach out for another is to risk involvement. To show your feelings is to risk revealing your true self. To place your ideas and dreams before a crowd is to risk their loss. To love is to risk rejection. To live is to risk dying. To hope is to risk failure. But risks must be taken. Because one of the greatest dangers in life is to risk nothing. Those who risk nothing, do nothing, achieve nothing, become nothing. They may avoid suffering and sorrow but they cannot learn, feel, change, grow, or even live. Chained by their certainties, they are slaves. They forfeited their freedom. Only the person who risks all he cannot keep to gain that which he can never lose is truly free. Just stand with me if you would. going to pray, maybe Seth will come back and lead us, but we're almost gone. You know what, well, if we've got to rush off, as long as we've got so much to rush off to that's going to change the world, Lord, I just pray, I pray for me, I pray for us. I pray, Lord Jesus, where we've circled the wagons tried to hold on to what we've got as a church 
I pray for those times when we've even forgot it's a war and just let all sorts of donkey's head stuff just fill our diet. We've fed from the table of the counterfeit gods. And it's left us passive and cynical. And we've grumbled and fed amongst ourselves. But Lord, I pray as you speak your word from from Scripture this morning, I pray for that response that says, surely, surely God is able. I pray that we'd weigh up the few short days of our lives and say, well, if we stay here, we're going to die anyway. I pray that you'd send us outside the camp, Lord Jesus, to where you are, to where you're doing your stuff, when you're, where you're changing lives, where you're breaking into situations. Lord, we say we want to be there with you. We want to feast on you and your goodness. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we'd go out there and find fresh priorities, fresh perspectives that would shape our actions. I pray that we won't be the, the gasquet people say, well, there's plenty of reasons why it can't happen here. And I pray, Lord, that we'd make that trade. We'd trade our comfort, our certainties, our easy life to see you bring freedom to this place, to see you bring freedom to the lives of others. Lord, we just pray, come by your spirit now. Just want you to respond in this song. In one sense, I know God's spoken to you because I feel he's spoken to me and that's usually a good indicator. Um, But I just want you to say, Jesus, I'm there. If you're not a Christian, then you say, I'm there. I trade all those days for him. And if you are a Christian and you've just become cynical and you've thought, God can never do it here. He can never do it with me. I'll never amount to anything. Let's take that step outside the camp and say, let's see what God will do. Amen. Let's respond to him and then maybe we'll pray. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.